welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. In this special episode, I interview Elizabeth Stevens, known to her friends, colleagues, and interviewers as Betty. Betty is one of immigration's best and fairest advocates, having worked in pretty much all aspects of the profession. As you'll hear, she's been a consulate officer in Ethiopia, an assistant director of OIL's district court section, and currently serves in an of-counsel position at Porch Thompson Law. And the list goes on. She's past chair of the Federal Bar Association's Immigration Law Section, and very recently testified before Congress to advocate for her long-fought project making immigration judges and BIA members Article I judges. Betty and I spoke on March 15, 2022 about these and many more issues vital to immigration attorneys. So strap in, because it's about to get nerdy. I hope you enjoy. Betty Stevens, thank you so much for coming on the show, and I'm so happy that you joined us. I'm thrilled to be asked to do this. So like so many guests on the podcast, you and I have never met. This is the first time we've met. And hopefully we will be meeting in person soon because I think we'll both, obviously you, but me as well, will be at the FBA annual immigration conference in Detroit in May. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to being able to be back at the immigration law conference. We've had a hiatus um, where we were virtual for two years, and this is this is the first time that we've I'll be able to see everybody since Austin. That's great. And I'm just curious, I've got a lot of family outside Detroit. I love Detroit. I'm so happy that you guys picked Detroit, but not many people pick Detroit. Why has the Federal Bar Association picked Detroit? The people want to know. I, I'm guilty. Um, <laughs> when I was chair of the immigration law section, we were looking at places to have our next conference. And we loved having the conference in Memphis. The only problem was is that there was only one airline that served Memphis. We also like to have the conference 
in the center of the United States because that way it's cheaper for everybody to get there as opposed to some. And so we were looking around in the center of the United States and looked at Detroit and it kind of stuck out because it is a, uh, um, it has an airport that has more than one airline servicing. It has a border with another country. So we can hopefully pull in more um, people from CBP and talk about actual border issues. I always forget about that border. <laughs> well, the International Bridge did get a little few minutes of fame this past uh, year or so. Right. Um, but uh, in addition to the to that, um, Detroit is not really on people's high lists. So it's a amazingly budget conscious place to have a conference. I'm a huge fan of Detroit. I'm I'm really happy. That being said, that was a very professional way of saying that the FBA is sponsored by Delta. That was, uh, that was very, very professional. I'm excited, and I appreciate the invite from FBA. So, Betty, you've had quite the career already, and you're nowhere close to being finished, but you've been at the highest parts of immigration for a long time, and I want to talk a bit about that. You're at the Office of Immigration Litigation, rising all the way to Assistant Director of the District Court section, so I guess a lot of listeners have litigated against you. <laughs> and then later, after you left in 2016, litigated with you. And you are the past chair of the Federal Bar Association's Immigration Law Section. And the reason that I really wanted to talk to you most of all is because you recently testified before Congress about making immigration judges, Article I judges, the long-fought battle. And so I want to talk about all of this now. But like so many guests on the podcast, I'd like to start with your personal and professional background, maybe even before oil if you would be so kind. Well, my uh, um, personal professional background in, that has any uh, connection with immigration law started long before law school. Um, it started when my husband and I were posted to Athens, Greece, and they were looking for somebody to help out in the Beirut files as a visa assistant. So these were the files that were pulled out of the American embassy in Beirut after the bombings in the 70s and um, were housed in Athens, Greece. So they were looking for somebody who spoke Arabic, French, and or Armenian. And since at that time I spoke Arabic and French fairly fluently, I was lucky enough to land the job and started working with immigrant visas um, from the get-go. And it was a very good introduction to immigration law because I only did immigrant visas and we had we had the old-fashioned method of dealing with counting the numbers by looking at cards. We, wow. It was not computerized. Um, the Greek side was computerized, but the Beirut files were not. After Greece, we came back to the United States and after a few years working for a immigration practitioner up in Wheaton, Maryland, I uh, found out that we were get, getting posted to Ethiopia. And I said, well, I'll go to Ethiopia if you get me in the new program the State Department is doing for spouses that um, basically gave a spouse a um, field commission for if they got a position in the counselor section. So when I got to Ethiopia, I got a job in the counselor section and I was adjudicating visas day in and day out. So um I, so it was uh, non-immigrant visas in the morning and immigrant visas in the afternoon, and uh, I 
refer to that as my Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde period. Is it the immigrant visa or the non-immigrant visa that is Mr. Oh, Hyde? Oh, non-immigrant non, non visa was just say no. Um, I, oh, I this, this was Ethiopia um, just after the dark. Uh, people were very, people were, would have a very difficult time showing that they had things in Ethiopia that would make them come back to Ethiopia from the United right. States. Right. Um, and immigrant visas, the presumption really was issuance by the time that they got here. So just to take a step back, you worked for the Department of State with your husband for many years before going to law school? We moved back and forth from country to country. I worked for the Department of State when I was overseas. I worked for state uh, probably about six years. After we came back from Ethiopia, I worked for the passport office for three years doing passport adjudication. Then after that, uh, it was time for me to step back and figure out maybe it was time for me to go to law school. Before we get into all the the boring stuff about Article 1, which, just joking, I'm fascinated by it, and I also advocate for it, what was Ethiopia like? We arrived in Ethiopia three months after Mengistu left. Um, so this was 1986 to 89, I believe, yes. And uh, um, at first, you would go down to the shops and there'd be maybe one thing in the storefronts, but they'd still be open and they were happy to, to sell you that one thing that they had. And people did not go out on the streets walking. It was, it was a very empty feeling country. But as time went by and people realized that Mengistu really had left and there was a change, people started coming out in the streets. And shops opened up and, and goods poured in. And by the time that we left three years later, it was a very, it was a bustling economy and you could get just about anything that you wanted to. However, the poverty levels were horrendous. And I'm no expert on the Horn of Africa, but I do know, I believe that there is a war with Eritrea shortly after in the early to mid nineties. How, how does this all shortly relate? Shortly after we left. Shortly after you left. So. What, why did so why did that happen in your opinion and and how and, and in retrospect did you see the signs of that forthcoming war while you were in country there was definitely tensions between the different tribes the um Tigrayans and Eritreans and the Oromo so there was all these tensions between the different ethnic groups that were bubbling below the surface but the real problem with for Ethiopia is that it's landlocked. It has no port. It has an airport, but it's landlocked. It has mm -hmm. no seaport. And Eritrea and Tigray were the factions that basically ended up forcing out Mengistu and controlled the government for the first couple of years. But they fought between themselves over control of certain things, whether they were from actually in Eritrea or in, or in Ethiopia. So there was a lot of uh, ethnic tensions and tribal tensions. Thank you for that. This is completely unfair. You and I talked a bit about what you'd be talking about today, and this was not on the list. And you yes. are you do not hold yourself out as an expert on Ethiopia or its war with Eritrea in the 90s. But I appreciate you going yes. over that with me. Yeah, thanks. And, and since I wasn't there, everything is um, really from at a remove as far as seeing yeah. what actually went on. So many of our friends in Ethiopia are still there. It's 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 hard for them and it's hard for 
it, it's hard for us here. Although I do have to say that it's always amusing when I go into various and assorted um, Ethiopian restaurants and I order Ethiopian food and I say, please, I need some meat mita on the side. And they said, you want meat? It's the very hot spice. Yeah. And as soon as, you know, we get over that, I am a person of honor at the table because here's this American who knows Ethiopian food. So yeah, no, it's it's that's a good practice pointer, which we're going to get into with oil in a second. But Mita, I am a spice wuss, and so I don't know though to order it just to get in with their good graces, make it seem like I'm eating it, so they respect me more. I think that's a good uh, move. They're going to want to see gonna watch. the video. They're going to watch. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I, I'm not. I can't go all in then. I'm a wuss. <laughs> So jumping forward, you're with the Office of Immigration Litigation. Really, as the district court section expanded and immigration litigation nationwide at the district court level got pretty big? I joined OIL itself in 2002. Ah. Um, And I was working, um, that's when everybody was working on petitions for review. There was no real district court section. Right. And after a couple of years, I decided that I would try to go to the National Advocacy Center, the NAC as we call it, and uh, I took the district court trial ad course. And when I came back, the then person who headed up the district court, Dave Klein, asked me if I'd like to take one on. I said, sure. And that was Santian. So it was a nationwide class action suit. Uh, it was my first ever district court case. Wow. <laughs> Dave, Dave said, I just told him, I said, Dave, this is a class action. He said, do you know anything about class actions? I said, we wrote on them for appellate efficacy. Oh, you're an expert, he said. Yeah. And then in two years, I had 15 class actions. Oh, my God. And this was all of the delay litigation on the naturalization cases, mostly. The reason I had so many is because the actual statute permits filings only in the district court with adjudication that has... Um, jurisdiction over the place of residence, so that you had to have a Northern District of California and a Central District of California and a Southern District of California, different class actions, if I'm making sense. Yes, it it does. There's multiple class actions on the same issue, but it all has to be a class action within a district court because everyone has to have residence there. That's right. That's ridiculous. That almost defeats the purpose of a class action. There was a lot of uh, um, discussion as to whether class actions were appropriate vehicles. Um, However, since the first ones were filed in Seattle and Los Angeles and San Francisco, it's not surprising that they were they went on to being class actions. No comment. (laughs) (laughs) The district court section came into being in 2008. Um, and, uh, at first we only had, uh, two sections and when one person left, I was selected as one of the new assistant directors. Why did district court become so big at oil? Why did it become so important from essentially nothing when you began to today? I think it's like 50% of what oil does. I can only speak to what I observed. Of course. Um, it is my opinion that the reason that it became so big was is that the immigration the immigration bar discovered class actions. Blame Ira Kurzban. Um, Ira certainly had his. I never worked on one of Ira's <laughs> cases that are directly. That's the funny part. Um, no, it, it, it's not just Ira. It's it's uh, um, a whole 
everybody thought so there was Santian and then there were all these these naturalization cases going on and all of a sudden boom we had a bunch more other than other than the ones that were filed by the ACLU and you had to have people to staff it and to be perfectly honest the type of personality and the type of person who wants to work district court litigation, which is move, 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 massive discovery, move, 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 move. You don't have time to sit back and write. I mean, one of my first cases, I got the case on Monday. On Tuesday, I'm writing the brief. On Wednesday, I'm flying to Seattle to argue whether a preliminary injunction should be granted. That's that's, that's nuts. And but that's you know, you, district court, that's class action litigation with TROs and, and preliminary injunctions and you name it. And that's even before you get into discovery. We always think of oil or the assistant U.S. attorneys litigating it as part of a big machine with all the resources in the world and a lot of time and really, mm. really on top of it. But it, yeah, you're under the same oil is under the same pressures as the plaintiffs. Well, actually, it's different. As a, as a defendant, because plaintiffs know long in advance that they're going to file this and do all the, do all the research, and defendants don't have that luxury. You get the case, and you've got that sixty day, because it's federal. That sixty day deadline is looming, unless they file for a TRO, and then you right. don't have sixty days. You've got to respond. Right. I mean, I loved working appellate litigation. But district court was just so, it's, I'm an adrenaline junkie. That's district court litigation. That's the best way to put it. Before we leave oil, I'm always interested about practice pointers for all the attorney listeners as well. I'm sure you saw a lot of good attorneys during your time in the district court section. I'm sure you saw a lot of not so good attorneys. What are some of the things that you brought with you into private practice that you could share with federal court litigators? Don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call your opposing counsel. Find out if you're filing something, find out as soon as possible who the person on the other end is, because you need to talk how how you're going to do discovery. Are you going to do tiered discovery? Are you going to do um, different tranches of discovery? Are you going to agree to a... a, uh, schedule that's different than than what you might normally do Mm. um are you going are you going and always 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 unless they're unless it is clear that there's being that there's abuse of process agree to an extension of time to file the brief when opposing counsel did not want to say oh yeah sure you can have an extra week to file that brief the Names of those people did go around. People people learned who was not who who said no, and then it became a little bit more difficult to grant them an extension in another case. The Kurzban firm and its iris policy, I don't think it's a secret. We we will almost always grant an extension, like you said, unless there's an abuse. It's just collegial. And honestly, like you know, oil attorneys, if you don't, if if they don't get the extension, they're still gonna submit a good brief. You're just going to upset your the other side. You're not going to achieve anything substantive. They're not going to let their case lose because they didn't get their briefing extension. The other real pointer that I would have is, is that do not demonize the people on the other side of the, on the other side, on the other table. It doesn't help 
your case to denigrate or belittle the person who's sitting at, at council's bench on the other side of the table. Yeah. There have been times when I may have gotten a slightly better edge in a case because I didn't or I didn't react. It's it's hard to say, you never know, but you can't you can't belittle the efforts. I, I, again, just six months as a law student intern, but I think it was Director McConnell who said it and it stuck with me. And it's been, it's been almost 10 years now that, that, and he was talking obviously to the oil attorneys, but now I'm, I, I'm, I never was an oil attorney and I am not now, but be the individual that the judge, that the court is going to rely on, be the individual that the court trusts for the facts and the law who has a you know solid demeanor, who's not demonizing, and who's not trying to pull a fast one. And if you can get the court to believe you, to defer to you when they're deciding who to believe in the briefs, to the arguments, that's already a small win right out the gate. Oh, it's more than that, though. When you get a brief that's in 15 different fonts. We're not going to talk about that. A little bit. I'm exaggerating. Um, there. Uh, those are the ones where the the law clerk, the judge, and your opposing counsel is just going like putting yeah. their heads in their hands and and just and and you know the judge is not going to read that. He's going to put it off to the side. He's going to read the next brief. He doesn't have time. Right. And you also want to pull them into reading it. Right. Um, so as I I said earlier, that the judge is not going to read all of the all of the briefs and they actually don't read all of the briefs that are in front of them but you, what you want to do is make something so compelling or a fact section telling a story that is coherent and timely and whatever that the judge is going to get pulled into reading more than just the headlines right and and your and your bullet points so thank you for that now to yeah. the meat of it the immigration law section of the Federal Bar Association. You're the past chair. Before we get into your recent testimony with Congress, I've, I've been curious about this. I'm a, I'm a member of the FBA. I'm a member of AILA. I think I respect them both. I think they're doing great work. I'm happy they both exist. But I am still a bit curious about what the difference is and the space that each of them operate. Well, the Federal Bar Association was formed initially to um, be a place where government attorneys could have a bar association um, because many government attorneys could not. It has morphed into something much more different than that. And, and I would say that government attorneys do are not a majority of the members of the FBA. However, the FBA um, specifically reaches out to all areas of the legal profession, to um, to judges, to magistrate judges, to clerks of court, to um, government attorneys and, and private bar. So it's one of the places where when you go to the immigration law conference, you're going to be chatting with immigration judges and quite possibly Article Three district court judges and, and uh, um, appellate judges. You're going to talk, be able to talk to government attorneys and, and whatever else, and you're going to get a much more nuanced view of where everybody is with the law. There, there are more judges. I mean, immigration judges are hardly allowed to even speak to anyone sometimes, it seems, but there are immigration judge 
members and active participants in the FBA and not as much with AILA, although it's changing with the administration. But does the involvement of the government employees with the FBA immigration section change how the FBA immigration section can act, can advocate, change the mindset? I don't know that it changes the mindset that much. So when I was active in the government, I could not be an AILA member. Right. I was barred. So so AILA basically cuts its, AILA is really all bar, all private bar. It's not, it's not government. It's not immigration judges. They don't, they, they might be, they might come to the meetings and, and, and what it present, but they can't, they're not members because they're right. government attorneys. They can't be members of AILA. The Federal Bar Association, they're members. And because of that, the the especially the immigration law section has to be really, really careful about advocacy. Right. So you have to be very nuanced in how you, as a section, talk about um, immigration law policy matters like that. As a matter of fact, uh, um, the whole Article One initiative was an issue for some of for those of us in the federal government, particularly those of us in a supervisory capacity, because we were DOJ supervisors management, and we were talking about pulling the immigration courts out of the Department of Justice. So so at least while I was still with DOJ, I did not feel that I could work on Article 1. But as soon as I left uh, and retired, then I I could definitely... uh, focus on uh, working with the Article, the Article 1 initiative. Interesting. So and from a from a practitioner standpoint, being part of the FBA immigration section, if nothing else, gives them an opportunity to speak with many more judges, hear from many more judges, because there are judges who are literally active in the section. Yes. Right. The FBA also has, the immigration law section also has a policy that um, as we populate the leadership ladder that we go private government, private government, private government. So there is always, there is always a balance of people at least holding the reins. They may all be pushing for the same issues, but there's a balance of backgrounds in looking at uh, how we're going to react to a particular policy or a particular event. My effort has been almost totally on Article 1, and I haven't worked a whole lot on anything else in the past five years. Well, let's talk about it. It is, it's, it's, it's the type of thing that makes people fall asleep, including Congress people, but it's so important. And, you know, right off the bat, I, I believe you did as well. I, I could be wrong. I, before my federal clerkship, I worked in an immigration court, and I found the judges that I worked for to be incredibly professional and and kind and thoughtful. And yet I still do believe that making them Article One judges would raise the entire system from both the judge, immigration prosecutor, and respondents counsel standpoint. So what is Article One judges? What are we talking about in layman's terms? For the purpose of this, I'll go way back to the beginning. And as we all know, there are three branches of government. There's Congress, there's the executive, and there's the judiciary. Congress has the power to make new courts. That's part of their constitutional party to make new courts. But they also don't have to make them within Article 3, which is the judiciary. An Article 1 court 
is actually a court that was created by Congress, separate from the Article Three courts. So the head of an Article One court is essentially Congress rather than Justice Roberts. No. No. <laughs> that's, oh, that's, that's the. It's, so Article One courts, um, because of the appointments clause. Um, have to be headed by somebody who was nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. So with your Article I courts, you have a presidential nomination and a Senate confirmation. That's why they have the, the uh, um, ability and the power to be, to be principal officers and therefore can appoint lower, the, the like the trial level judges or things like that. But there's only a there's only a handful of Article One courts, um, of true Article One courts. The magistrates and bankruptcy judges have kind of gone, although the bankruptcy judges were an Article One court because they had their uh, um, jurisdiction coexists with the district court. It really has been blended into the Article Three system of government governance. Um, but there's the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, there's the United States Tax Court, and I think there's at least one other that I'm missing right now off the top of my head. All of them are Article I courts. They were created by Congress as specialty courts in looking at a very specific area. And in all of them, the individual judges have been nominated by the president and, and confirmed by the Senate. The immigration court proposal is different in that what we are proposing is, is that only the appellate division, basically replacing the Board of Immigration Appeals, only the appellate division would be um, nominated and confirmed, and then they would appoint the trial-level judges. So we wouldn't have to have 600 judges confirmed. I was wondering, yeah, no, that sounds like chaos. But the, but the judges that the the Article 1 BIA would appoint would then be Article 1 judges themselves? Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's not an Article 1 judge. It's a judge in an article. It's an Article 1 court. Right. A judge in an Article 1 court. Yes. And so today, correct me if I'm wrong, immigration judges are appointed by the attorney general to the extent it makes any sense whatsoever. They are article two judges because they are within the executive fully. And they are, I believe for, for legal purposes, they are employees of the department of justice, correct? They're attorneys that are employed by the department department of justice that have a job title that says immigration judge. Um, but uh, as we learned um in the previous administration, uh, that doesn't make them any less an employee of the Department of Justice. And they are at-will employees. That right now, they can only be dismissed for cause, but they're still at-will employees of the Department of Justice. And so the Attorney General has the power to appoint and to fire or discipline or put any number of really strange things uh, into the uh, process to make make their make them spend less time thinking and more time just rolling out the cases. Like a 700 case completion requirement. Yeah. Has the FBA and its research on the issue discovered or come to any conclusion regarding whether or not the prospect of being fired at will 
And the fact that the attorney general is the ultimate boss of IJs has an effect on how IJs conduct themselves? That is uh, something that can only be really delved into by talking to the immigration judges themselves. As uh, um, many of them have stated, it they don't have time. They don't have they they don't have time to really hear a full case. They, they, there's always push. You've got to have a uh, hearing that should be three four hours. It has to be over in two. Um, how do you decide which you know which witnesses you you're going to see? Are you just going to take a proffer? Right. Um, and many of the immigration judges that I've talked to feel that they are able to come to the correct conclusion, but it's not necessarily with the in the fullness of giving everybody the opportunities that they need to present their case. The other problem that I would say, as far as whether it's an Article One or Article Two, the real problem is, is that, that right now the immigration courts are part of the bureaucracy. There are almost as many attorneys supervising the immigration judges, or at least definitely as far as uh, um, as far as EOIR itself is concerned, there's almost as many attorneys working on stuff other than actually deciding cases than there are people deciding cases. You've got your office of policy. I don't know why immigration courts need a policy. Um, you've got, you have, uh, you used to have a whole bunch of people doing regulations. Well, that's a, they need that because under the current system, basically EOIR has to uh, get DHS to agree to most of their regulations. And that's why we don't have things like statutorily uh, uh, provided. Uh, um, Sanction authority? Yes. Right. The statute allows for it, but there were never regulations implemented because DHS gave pushback. Is that about right? The statute specifically required both DHS and DOJ to agree on regulations to implement that particular part of the statute, which means it's never going to happen. And I understand that that immigration judges are part of DOJ, but I also greatly respect the immigration judge entity as a judge. I want them to be judges. And it just kind of offends me on a on a deep level that any judge would need approval by one of the litigants before her or him. That's not to say you don't ask for the opinions of both sides that come before the court, but to be subservient to a litigant is just not what a judge is to me. And that's one of the reasons that's just at base I um, I gravitate towards the Article One movement. Mm-hmm. One of the core reasons that we really think that an Article One court is necessary is is that the Attorney General specifically is a prosecutorial function. They're the ones that bring cases, not in the immigration court, but they bring cases. They do lots of other things. So basically, is a prosecutorial function. The courts were left within DOJ when DHS was formed in order to try to give some distance between the immigration prosecution that is that is ICE and the immigration courts. But the way that it's worked out since then, because of the required uh, um, collaboration between the two agencies, because they're all part of the same administration. Right. You know, F- FBA is obviously neutral on the issue, but I do know that a lot of the listeners of the podcast, not all of them, I know I have ICE and immigration judge listeners, which I'm very grateful for and honored by, but the majority are the 
Respondents Council, and I am one myself. How does how do you believe that making immigration judges Article One judges will benefit Respondents Council? I think I'm going to quote Diana Ross. It all goes down to R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Of course. R-E- it goes down to respect for the immigration judge, for the immigration judge's decision, whether it's from the government side or whether it's from the private bar or from the person who's not part of the bar, that one of the immigrants who they go in, they see this whole format and they don't think they, you know, they have no idea what's going on. And if they really don't think that the immigration judge is independent, they think that the immigration judge is bound by DHS or ICE or or any or any part of that, they're not going to respect the decisions and they're going to cause more appeals and more motions to reopen. So immigration judges then have to see this case two, three times, goes up to the Board of Immigration Appeals, maybe back and forth, goes to the to the uh, numbered circuits on a petition for review, and where they finally think that they've got an independent arbiter. So without a true independent arbiter, which is what we are proposing, we, the FBA, are proposing for the immigration courts, without, without that respect for the, arbit- for the actual position, not the person, because we all respect the persons, but for the position and for, and for the law, without respect for the law and, and the institution, you get appeals, you get people don't, there, there are some that don't even show up anymore. They vote one, they don't, they're not being heard, and they don't go back. And then they've got an in absentia order that haunts them for the rest of their lives when they try to make, make everything better. Right. So to, to do the pushback from the respondents bar for all the listeners who aren't here but might have the question, there has always been a fear that if immigration judges have the sanctioned authority, if there's if they have more if there is more respect given to immigration judges and more authority in general, that it's generally the respondents bar that will suffer, that they will use that sanction authority against the respondents bar. What do you I'm have laughing. to say to that? I am laughing at that because I clerked for the immigration court in Arlington for a year and I was an intern at the immigration court there for a, for a, for a year earlier than that. And I will say, without naming any particular judge, that a majority of the judges would much rather have sanctioned the (laughs) HS Council than the the private bar. Um, And a lot of that has to do with case numbers and how much, you know, everything that they have to do. But I, I would say that I believe that most of the judges would not be, again, deciding only against the private bar, that it would be fairly evenly split. I think that um, everybody will have to up their game. Yeah, you do have to show up with your client on time. Um, right. Then those are the types of things that are going to get the sanctions, not showing up or, well, you know, any any types of things. They're not, are not being prepared to argue the case when you've known for two years that this is the date it's going to be on. Um, whether it's whether it's private bar, whether it's uh, whether it's ICE Council, it's the same thing. You have to be prepared on the day uh, it's supposed to go. And the other side of that is I've seen egregious conduct by the respondents bar, both when I was working for the immigration judges and outside it. And without sanction authority or something like it, immigration judges can't do much other than punish the non-citizen. They can't it's, they can't really punish 
the attorney and that Mm -hmm. creates all sorts of problems that nobody wants. Anybody who cares about Mm non-citizens certainly doesn't want the non-citizen punished for the transgressions of their attorney. Yes. So I'm also though a bit curious just to give a bit more pushback on it. And again, I, I also advocate for immigration judges to become article one, but I'm just going to make up the number because I don't even know. Was the backlog at like 1.3 million cases? One I, I don't point, e- over 1.6. 1.6. I mean, what's what's even That's the difference? That's just the trial backlog. We won't that, even talk about the board backlog. We won't even talk about the board. And it seems to me that one of the benefits you also believe from the Article 1 would be more due process, more time to hear and consider cases. How do you do those two things at once? How does making... Immigration judges, Article One, both resolve the backlog and allow for more due process. Despite all of the judges that EOIR has added in the past two years, the backlog just keeps on getting bigger and bigger. So it's not adding judges in the system that it currently is in. It is allowing judges to control their own dockets rather than have dockets controlled by some central um, authority off that, ha- that the judges have no input on. The judges uh, have suffered over the years by changing, change uh, by administration saying, do this, no, do this, do this, do this. And every time they do a different this, their cases get pushed back for another three years. Right now, EOIR is not scheduling cases beyond uh, two years, but they, if they really were, it would be five years out. That's that's justice delayed. I mean, these people are in limbo for all this time. They need a decision one way or the other. It just it'll help them get on with their life. So by giving so, immigration judges control over their dockets, we you believe that they'll not only have more time to decide cases, but they'll be able to get rid of their backlog more efficiently than a centralized management. I think that they the immigration judges know what cases are going to need which cases can get done quickly and get out and get done. They're going to, they're going to know, okay, I really do need, this is going to be a six hour one. So I'll pair that with this one that we should be able to get done. Mm-hmm. One of the things that by virtue of being an article one court, the immigration court, and this is one big thing for the private bar, the immigration court would have mandamus jurisdiction over the parties before it. Okay, so if DHS decides to bring somebody um, in removal proceedings, then the immigration judge can indeed tell USCIS, adjudicate this darn petition, get it done. That, yes, okay, so that's a game changer, <laughs> filing mandamus actions in before an no, immigration judge. No, you, uh, it, a, would be a a motion, ma- it would have to be a motion um, in the immigration court. Right, a mandamus-like action in immigration court to get the same result without having to go to a district court judge. That seems more efficient. They would have to already be before the immigration judge. Right. So so this would be for those people who uh, have a spouse or a parent who's filed a petition for their behalf or a company that USCIS has not adjudicated the petition so they can't adjust status in immigration court. Everything's pending and waiting and waiting and waiting. The immigrate if if they are brought before the immigration judge, then the immigration judge can say, "Okay, you will adjudicate this within three months." Not adjudicate it for them, but tell them that they will do it within three months. 
they or would be telling DHS, DHS. to take this petition. And DHS would then be able to, t- would, would then tell USCIS, which is part of DHS. Well, I think you just answered the question, why is this such a good thing for Respondents Council? <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's incredible. The other thing that uh, goes back to respect is, is that uh, right now, because DOJ is DOJ, only the respondents can appeal to the circuit courts. So the courts of appeals only see one side of the story. They only see one side of the story. They only well, see it. Well, now, 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 you, now I'm not liking the path you're going on one bit. Not one bit. Well, the, the thing is, is that uh, um, if the attorney general doesn't have the last say on a board of immigration appeals decision, and because that's taken totally out of the attorney general's hands, you have to allow, it's the Federal Bar Association's view that you have to allow the government to um, be able to take a, an appeal in a petition for review setting. Do, and you were at DOJ, even as an intern, you know that not every appeal is approved. And, not, and, and most of them never even make it make it past the first, the first whatever. So this is not going to be a tsunami of government appeals. Um, just like every other place, it'll have to go up through the, through the appellate uh, funnel and uh, um, get approved by the Solicitor General. That takes time, it takes effort, it takes a lot of writing. Without any inside knowledge on the issue, I do worry how a second term Trump administration oil would take the ability to appeal BIA decisions to the circuits. It does seem like the former administration tried to weaponize many immigration agencies to be more aggressive in any way possible. It is it is possible. However, you still have to have a non-Rule 11 issue to appeal. Fair enough. And um, so if I had a district court habeas, just a plain old habeas, and we lost, I would have to automatically file a notice of appeal. That's that's a given. But then I would have to write probably a three to 10 page memorandum talking about the case, saying why the, the, the issue is so important that we should appeal this case. And uh, that would have to go up through four levels of bureaucracy before you even got to the Solicitor General's office and you needed approval at every step along the way. That was when you were at oil. Mm-hmm. So even a, something sim- as simple as a habeas case, the, this, the, the whole review over whether or not an appeal is going to be permitted is huge. And it, it, does, it does reduce the knee-jerk reaction of we're appealing everything. Just look at what happened to the immigration courts when there was no discretion by the individual ICE counsel. Yeah. When that was re- when that was removed, the discretion of DOJ is is not. I, I do not. I believe will will solve most of that problem. There's always going to be issues, no matter what. There's issues right now with laws not being enforced. There's issues with laws being enforced too much. Um, in the previous administration, it it is a uh, it's a pendulum, and we don't know which way it's going to swing. There's a fair point, and I really appreciate your candor. I mean, nothing 
nothing is simple, nothing is easy, nothing is straightforward, and nothing is black and white. Mm-hmm. Especially, and I guess that's the FBA immigration section in a nutshell, right? Because you've got stakeholders from every spectrum of the issue. Mm-hmm. And so before we go, I want to just talk generally, well, I want to talk specifically about your recent testimony before Congress on the Article 1 issue, but just testifying before Congress in general. I, I watched your your testimony before Congress. I thought you did a great job. I don't know if you like it better or worse that it was remote. I don't know. You, I, you, did, you didn't get to go into the chamber. Is that correct? That's correct. It was remote. I was sitting at ho- in my home on a office and... Uh, um, at least I was more comfortable. Yeah. Um, it is harder and easier. So I have been to um, hearings before, especially Article One hearings, and it's. I think it's easier to connect to the person who's asking a question and figure out where they're going and and how best to respond when you're there in person, but. What you also get when you're there in person is is that this person's going this way and that person's going this way and they're they're half of them are doing and looking at their phone or answering questions or talking to staff they're not paying attention to you with the uh, um, with the Zoom although all we saw the panel so we did see that but it was easier to focus on the face of the person that was asking you a question. I saw there was one congressperson. She was in her car during it. Is that? Yes. I, I, I kind of like, what is this? How? What a world we live in. And she she was focused. She was asking the question. She was paying attention. But what a world! Actually, there were two. There were two. Uh, and somebody had to le- somebody had to leave her office and and was heading off to the airport. Yeah. How? So, how many times have you testified before Congress? I, that was my first time. That was your first time. Of, of physically testifying. I have provided written testimony in the past, but I have not physically testified before. How, how did you like it? I had no idea how much time elapsed. It was uh, um, both exhilarating and enervating at the same time. It's very hard to stay focused for that long on a camera. No. The real problem is, is that when you're the testifying part, or when you're doing your opening statement, that's the easy part. And you work on that, you prepare it, whatever. But you, when you're answering questions, you have to keep in mind that they don't have that much time. So you have to distill your answers very quickly. And that is, that is difficult. And especially when somebody says that you said something that you know you could not possibly have said. Right. It, it seems like some of the Congress people... And this is really not just on your panel, but any panel are not completely coming at it, no matter what party it is, are not completely coming at the issue in good faith, that their mind is made up and they're using the opportunity to give their own speech on the issue. Absolutely. I mean, that's part of the whole thing. How do you deal with that? I mean, you're not you're not there to be the conduit to their opinion. You're there to answer questions and to inform the panel. Or is that not what you view your role as? Yes, that is the role. But um, this is Congress. This is politics. They're all going to they all have their little speeches, even if they're if even if they're little speeches in your in support of whatever you're whatever you're proposing. Hmm. Uh, this is that's part of the part of the deal. So the key is, is to figure out where they're going to come at you with a question while they're pontificating on whatever matters that they decide that they need to talk about, whether it's the border or 
people who fought in the armed forces who never bothered to get naturalized and then were deported to Mexico or wherever else, um, whatever whatever the issue is that they want to talk about, you let them talk and figure out how that's going, how you're going to be able to fit in what you want to talk about into what they're asking. How do you prepare for that? Do you do research on all on each congressperson on the panel and and, and try and guess where they're going to come at you, or what? Well, how does one prepare for a congressional testimony? The the real key is is that you have to be able to talk on your issues clearly. Whether that's responding to a question in one way, you want to you work on any number of you can't really prepare for testimony per se. It's the same thing of going before a court of appeals. You got three judges. You have no idea where their questions are going to come from because you don't know where they are on this case. You have a pretty good idea the third or fourth or fifth time you be you before these particular judges, but you still don't know where the question's going to come from or who the question's going to come from. So you moot, you do any number of uh, run-throughs with people asking you questions from left field. But when push comes to shove, you don't have anybody sitting there feeding you stuff during the, during the uh, testimony. You just roll with the punches and you, yeah. you, you stay out, you stay on your narrative. You stay, you're there to talk about article one courts. You're there to convince, to make your stay on, on why article one is the best thing to do. That's right. And so if, if the immigration judges became part of the Article One framework, if they were part of, if they were under Article One of the Constitution, what would happen with the Attorney General's authority to issue precedential decisions and overturn the BIA? Does that go away? That goes away. Yes, um, but the so so yes, that would go away. That because that's number one regulation. Um, and the the uh, court has would have its own power to issue regulation and rules of court. Right. The attorney general power over immigration law and everything else would be through the uh, through the appeals process. Um, through the the other thing is in in front of the Article One in front in front of the Article One immigration court, you already have a representative of the executive. You have ICE counsel in front of you. If you're an immigration judge, so ICE counsel is there. They're part of. They're part of it, no matter what. So, insofar as uh, saying what the law is, the attorney general still has the authority over saying what the law is for the executive. Um, when the appellate division would issue a decision, they can overrule the the attorney general. They would give his opinions um, some deference, but they can overrule. What do you think Congress's appetite is for this at the present time? Has, has the FBA caucused? It's really interesting. So the whole Article 1, this is not the first time an Article 1 bill has been introduced in Congress. The uh, um, most recent one before this was introduced by a Florida congressman, Bill McCollum, who happens to be Republican. Throughout the decades since then, um, the push to an Article One immigration court has come from whichever side is not in power. Right. With the administration. Right now, it's very, it is unusual in that uh, um, the movers, the movers right now, the House Judiciary Committee, are the parties 
that have power in the administration. So this is unusual. We'll see what happens. There's a, uh, um, it's not really an immigration bill. It's a courts bill. And therein lies the problem because it has the immigration cachet, which means that it's very, very difficult to get anybody to listen. Right. But they're starting to listen. We'll see. You got to make it so wonky that all the Congress people forget that you're talking about immigration and then it can just slide in on the back end of a bill. Well, that's why this is called the Real Courts, Real Justice Act. It doesn't say immigration. <laughs> it could be any court. This is about drug courts. Yeah. Congress, Congresswoman. The thing that I would like to say is, is that uh, we have worked with the immigration judges um, on this from the get-go. As a matter of fact, it was an immigration judge that got the FBA um, immigration section to start focusing on this and uh, really carried the water for the first couple of years. But uh, this is a high priority for the FBA. And uh, we think the bill itself um, has been introduced in the House. It is probably going to mark up sometime in the next month or two. We'll see what happens then. Um, We do believe that a companion bill is going to be introduced in the Senate. I can't, I can't say by whom or when, but we think it's really, really important that this be a nonpartisan, a bipartisan or nonpartisan mm. um, effort. And we really, really would like to have your listeners push on their Congress people and senators to really take a look at this and, and um, look at what it can fix and not at party lines. Well, I appreciate that. And I think that a lot of listeners also appreciate that and are are for the cause. And maybe we can get some Congress people getting some phone calls. In the show notes, I'm going to put a link to your testimony before Congress and some other links to the FBA immigration section. And would it be all right um, if I put your email address in there for all the angry comments about why <laughs> Article One judges is not a good thing for the immigration court? Um, certainly you can, you can put my email on there. What I would, uh, um, request is that you actually put a link to the FBA, the, the part of the FBA website that has the article one immigration court information that has all of the information, the proposed legislation, why this, why that, why, why are we going through this model and not that model? Absolutely. I will put all of that into the show notes and direct all your angry messages, immigration judges. Towards Betty, please. She's she is the person you're after, not me. Yeah. Well, the immigration judges can uh, um, can direct it to their own National Association of Immigration Judges because they're pretty much in lockstep with us on pushing for this. So. Fantastic, that's good. Yeah. What what is happening with them? Did they win? Is that over? Is is there a um, a National Association of Immigration Judges again? I know the former there administration is. tried to oh, get there rid was of it. Always the the. They weren't a union. NIAJ always existed. They just were not certified to be a bargaining mm. entity for, for a short period of time. But that is over. Um, they are back in whatever it was. It's interesting if they are if they do become article, if they are grandfathered into Article One immigration judges, then they're not gonna be a bargaining entity anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, right. It'll it'll do what the former administration wanted to get done by another another means. By I think a whole different means. 
I think they have an advocate. Uh, I think their former president is like number three in USCIS now. So Mm -hmm. um, the the immigration judges union is doing just fine, I guess. And good. And I congratulate them for that. Mm -hmm. Well, Mm -hmm. Betty, thank you so much for your time. This was very enlightening. We got really deep and really heady into all of this in about an hour, maybe even less. So that in and of itself is a success. Is there anything you'd like to say before, before we step, before we go? I have uh, worked on many sides of the immigration arena. Um, I've always enjoyed working with the totally different people that I meet from day to day in immigration law and um, really join the FBA and join us in in Detroit because it's going to be a great party. I'll be in Detroit. So if that doesn't get at least one listener, then I'm not even doing I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. Thank you for your time, Betty. It was a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to meeting you in person in Detroit. All right. Thank you very much. Have a great night. So there you have it. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt. And this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.